Section four of the Bachelors Club by Israel Zangwill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter three Hamlet Up to Date Part one Elliot de Cray took the blow of Caleb Twinkletop's marriage most to heart, with the possible exception of Caleb Twinkletop's cook. He did not reappear at the club till the Ides of March, and then his face seemed to have grown some years older. He was always a strange, irresolute being, and his glance round the smoking-room was wild and wandering. His eyes flitted from text to text. He shook his head. He stepped towards the inner sanctum. He retreated. He read the text again. Elliot de Cray was not Elliot de Cray, but his son. The Elliot de Cray was the famous novelist, essayist, dramatist, and universal provider. Our Elliot de Cray was the least celebrated of his father's works, and his popularity was limited to a select circle of friends and bachelors. His father's position had of course secured him a certain measure of prestige, but at best he was merely a souk d'estime. He was of no use in the world except as a support to the theory that genius is one of the diseases which are not inherited. The colossal mental energy of the father had beggared the family estate. It is unfortunate for the inheritors of fulfilled renown that there is no power of intellectual entail. The paternal geniality was, however, his in plenty, and in spite of his occasional fits of taciturnity and depression, his cronies accepted him on account of his amiability and the champagne supporters in his chambers overlooking the green park. His generosity was princely. He had nothing to do with his money or his time but spend them, and he did so right royally. But he paid for his pleasures in ennui. He drifted aimlessly along the stream of existence, giving heavy toll at all the locks and taking little heed of foghorns. He was too diffident to steer for anywhere. A low self-estimate may do credit to a man's judgment, but it will not carry him far. Modesty is but a poor virtue, though its ravages are not extensive. I used to shudder to think what would have become of Elliot de Cray had he been born sucking the wooden spoon instead of the silver. He would have swallowed it and choked himself. Aurority came up to him as he fumbled about with his eyes and legs and asked him if aught ailed him. No, quite well, quite well, he replied nervously. He shuffled away from his interlocutor. "'I can't stop,' he said. "Goodbye." "'Why, you're going away before you've come,' said Aurority, uplifting his eyebrows. "'I have seen all I wanted to. You really must excuse me.' "'You've seen only me. Apparently you don't want to.' "'Oh, yes, I do. I mean, I don't. I, I only came to look at these texts again.' The arch of Aurority's eyebrows widened. I thought every self-respecting bachelor knew them by art. Yes, yes, of course, they are engraved upon the book and volume of my brain, but still... Well, and now you've read them. You think of that? Elliot's eyes gleamed with troubled light. That, he said hesitatingly, there are more things in heaven and earth, or rarity, than are dreamed of in our philosophy. What do you mean by our philosophy? The philosophy of us bachelors, of course. Aurority snorted. Elliot's eyes strayed once more towards the text. Do you know, he said, half in reverie, what strikes me on looking at these texts again with fresh eyes, 
I, I mean, after an interval. You take me for a thought reader, growled Aurority. Well, it seems to me, went on Elliot in the same abstracted way, that there is a note of regret about some of them, a smack of sour grapes. Hey, man, what's that? cried McGillicuddy, appearing suddenly from the inner apartment. What's talking about sour grapes? The president's eyes glared suspiciously from beneath his horn spectacles. De Cry says we're dwelling under sour grape vines, said Aurority angrily. No, no, hardly that, said Elliot. What I say is that these texts have not the true grit, the hearty, honest ring of hatred and contempt. That one, for instance, says that love is the only excuse for marriage, and it is not an excuse that will wash or wear well. Now, the first part of that proposition is a distinct admission to the enemy. It grants that there is one excuse for marriage. Nay, but none of fascists, Elman. The second part sweeps it brawly away again, said McGillicuddy, speaking in his native Scottish and taking snuff in his agitation. By no means, persisted Elliot. By your means, said McGillicuddy, growing pale at DeCray's blasphemy. It's an absolute annihilation of the love argument. It is very like a whale, said Elliot quietly. Very like a whale, repeated the president, dropping his snuff-box in horror. Certainly. It laments that the excuse is not durable. It says, what an excellent thing a love marriage would be, only, unfortunately, wedded love has no staying power. Tell that to Mandeville Brown said McGillicuddy menacingly as he mopped his brow with his coloured handkerchief. "'Why did it cry?' added Aurority witheringly. "'If you made a fool yourself by falling in love, say so like a sensible man. But don't go and abuse the plaintiff's attorney.' Elliot smiled with quiet melancholy. "'No,' he said simply. "'I am not in love, nor likely to be.' "'Then why?' said McGillicuddy, dropping in English. Do you call into question all that we hold unquestionable? I am glad no weaker brother has overheard you. It might have unsettled his faith. It is for your sakes I call it into question. Your texts tacitly assume that love is the only motive that might induce a bachelor to marry, and they concentrate themselves upon showing that love, if it be not altogether an invention, is at best as fleeting as the snowfall upon the river. "'But love is far from being the only danger to be guarded against. "'It is money, position, convenience, comfort, conscience, social pressure, "'a thousand and one things that induce a man to marry. "'By comparison, love is un quartit negligible. "'Not one of your texts admonishes bachelors against these. "'You muster your apothegms and dash your serried maxims against a shadowy foe.' The real enemy lurks in a million guerrilla forms along the route. Remember how Twinkletop fell and Little Bethel? These texts are but the lamentations of a disillusioned but romantic spirit. The gerrymand of a lover who sees the worm at the core of Eve's apple. They are, I say again, very like a whale. He turned away more resolutely and strode to the door. Then he took a last glance at the club, dashed his hand across his eyes, and was gone. McGillicuddy and Aurority looked at each other aghast. What was the matter? What could have happened? 
What had produced this mental aberration? De Grey had never spoken so well, nor so lengthily. The two men were seriously alarmed. McGillicuddy's dignity kept him taciturn and tragic, but Aurority came over to my rooms the next morning and put the case to me. I was chagrined at having missed witnessing the symptoms for myself. Cherchez la femme was my conclusion. Aurority agreed with me in fearing the worst. Woman had robbed us of two of our members. Was another to be amputated by the same dexterous manipulator? If she could be found in time, we might forbid the bands or hinder them. But how to get at her? Aye, there was the rub. Aurority mentioned a detective agency. I'm afraid he has no delicacy of feeling. It took me some time to convince him of the meanness of having a fellow member spied upon, as if he were a criminal or a coming correspondent. I said that so long as I had a footing in the club, no bachelor should be dogged by an outsider. Aurority wriggled his mutton-chops, but my veto was absolute. I said that rather than use such dirty spy-glasses, I would try and ferret out what I could for myself. I called upon de Cray in the course of the next day, but his valet reigned in solitary majesty in the luxurious apartments. He condescended to inform me that something was worrying his master, who had turned his bedroom into a promenade instead of a sleeping chamber. This was all I could extract from the valet, though I made speech silver for him. I concluded that the yield of information was exhausted and abandoned the shaft. In the evening I went to the club. Nothing had been heard of him. McGillicuddy and Aurority listened to my want of news with unconcealed anxiety. A sense of coming misfortune hung over us all. If only I could find the woman! I went out into the streets and wandered aimlessly about, as if expecting to meet her by a miracle. I looked at every passer-by, as if he or she might be Elliot de Cray or his evil genius. When the passer-by was two in one, my stare became almost insulting. Near midnight I found myself at the end of Northumberland Avenue. The March wind blew cold and keen from the river, but I did not turn back. Was it fate that led my steps, or chance? Suddenly I became aware of commotion and bustle at the entrance of a building facing me, and in another instant remembered it was the National Liberal Club. What was going on? I crossed over. The hall was filled with an excited conversational throng. A momentary curiosity was succeeded by a flash of recollection. They were waiting for the verdict of Sloppleton. The member for Sloppleton had died. The tragedy of his death was sore. Years of ambitious lying were crowned by but one anonymous line in the evening posters, Death of an M.P. Sloppleton was a sleepy place, the inhabitants of which were amiable and stupid, concerned only about their souls and the local industries. They would not even go to the pole, except when driven by a natty coachman to the sound of brass bands. Naturally, therefore, the eyes of England were turned on the by-election at Sloppleton, there was fixed the axle of fortune's wheel. For a week and a half it was the hub of the universe, the center of political power. Justice, religion, political economy, foreign policy were among the things that were being weighed in the balance. At Sloppleton. Was the flowing tide with the liberals, or were they drifting back with the ebb? Was the great heart of the nation still throbbing for the Tory, or was it aching for the radical? 
such were the questions over which heads were broken at Slopleton, where strong things were said and drunk on both sides impartially. It was an anxious half-hour in Fleet Street, where the leader-riders were waiting, manuscript in hand, to know whether the victory they had won was a numerical victory or merely a moral victory. It was a no less anxious crisis in the hall of the National Liberal Club, where the movements of the tape were watched with far from bated breath. Why do people waste so much loquacity in speculating on news that will be stale in half an hour's time? I pushed my way to the hall. I was never a member of any London club except the bachelors. I like to do one thing at a time, but I find it convenient to turn into one sometimes, especially when I have been there with a member and the waiters know my face, so long as you do not take a mean advantage of the culinary resources of the establishment, nobody is a penny the worse. The National Liberal Club was at this time one of my favorite lounging places. It is such a huge caravanserai that I have always regarded myself as an honorary life member, a kind of understudy for the ex-uncrowned king who has never shown his face in the place. It frets me to see an honorary life membership wasted. It was Elliot de Cray who had first introduced me to this happy hunting ground. Perhaps I might find him here now. I elbowed my way through the crowd into the smoking-room, which was thickly studded with argumentative groups and heavy with the cloud-wreaths of a hundred cigars. I sauntered along, casting glances to the right and the left and peering into all the cushioned niches. My quarry was nowhere to be seen, but I was on the right scent, for I met a man who told me that he had seen him in this very room half an hour ago. While we were talking, a change came over the scene. A roar was heard outside. Men pressed towards the entrance. The news flew from lip to lip and lit up face after face like a flying electric spark. The liberals had scored an unexpected victory. The roof rang with cheers. The smoke swayed before the waving hats and handkerchiefs. Someone shouted the majority. It was large. The excitement redoubled. Everybody was shaking hands with somebody else. The crowd tossed about, huzzahing like a parcel of schoolboys. Somebody, who was a somebody, jumped on a chair. There was a fresh round of cheers. Fresh contingents of liberals poured in from the hall and upstairs. Then a deep silence fell upon the members as they hung upon the great man's exultant rhetoric. I gave one last sweeping glance around the smoking-room, then turned and walked up the noble staircase in search of Elliot de Grey. I met a dozen or so belated members, accompanied by the waiters, hurrying down from the various rooms towards the oratory. Otherwise, the upper stories of the club were deserted. The library was my last chance, but even that had been left alone in its glory. I walked up to the extreme end of it to see if perchance my man might lurk in a corner. In vain, it was obvious I had missed him in the usual crowd, or that he had left the club. Keenly annoyed, I threw myself dejectedly into an armchair. As I sat there brooding, a murmur of voices seemed to be wafted to my ear. I started up. No one was near. What could it be? A keen gust of wind smote me in the face and answered me. The balcony! I had forgotten the balcony. I moved stealthily towards the glass door of communication. It had been left slightly open, hence the draft of words and chill air. Scarcely breathing in my excitement, I peeped cautiously outside. 
The night was somber. The lights of the river gleamed redly. The moon shone fitfully through the brackish cloud. The leafless branches in the gardens and on the embankment rustled mournfully. In the furthest corner of the balcony, before a small round table, with their faces towards the railway bridge, sat two men, one slim, the other burly. Both wore overcoats and crush hats. One back I did not know. The other was Elliot de Cray's. Very well, Elliot. You are obstinate. I am firm. There can be no advantage in continuing the conversation, except to our doctors, for the air bites shrewdly. It is very cold, and my cigar has gone out. This is the second time you have wasted my time with your insane demands. Let's go in. I heard a mat strike as he relit his cigar. I bit my lips. I had come at the end of the conversation, but the next words rekindled my hopes and heated my interest to a boiling point. Father, will you not understand? So this was Elliot de Cray, the Elliot de Cray. I ventured a long glance at the great literary lion. I had never seen him before. He did not keep his son's company. He was a star, far off, inaccessible. Tonight he had fallen as near earth as the club balcony. I longed to see the face of the man whose books I had so often borrowed, but his skull was not transparent. It was not the back he wore in my ideal portrait. What that visionary back was I did not know. I only felt that it was not the back before me. Still, the face might be more in harmony with my preconceptions. Noiselessly, I wheeled a capacious armchair towards the window and obscured myself in its luxurious depths. With ears pricked up, I listened to the dialogue, as from a stall, though I and the persons of the drama were back to back. "'My boy, I understand perfectly that you are a fool. Do you also quite understand what I have resolved to do?' "'Certainly.' to demonstrate the fact to the world. Father, since our first conversation, I have thought over this thing day and night. You have eluded me. Yes, sir, you may smile, but you have eluded me. You were never in when I called. My dear Elliot, my engagements are not to balk at my engagement. To whom? You know whom, father. You never told me you had gone so far as to engage yourself to— Yes, father, I am in honor bound. I made the poor old man a definite promise of redress. What other course was open to me as an honest man when I learnt the truth? The sin must be expiated. Cost what it may, justice must be done. My dear Elliot, when you know as much of the world as I do, you will prefer the heavens to fall. Oh, yes, I know how the times are out of joint. You are not the man to set them right. But you are, father. Not even I. I tell you again, you are making a mountain out of a molehill. Such molehills are the natural pimples on the unhealthy face of the world of today. Yes, sir, I know. You are quoting my own book quite right. Well, sir, I refuse to accept the sentiment. I had hoped it was not yours. I still believe in honor and what it asks of us. Come, father, I will not believe that you will set your face against the only righteous way out of this unrighteous situation. It is hard, it is a great sacrifice, but it must be made. For the last time, Elliot, if you have taken leave of your senses, allow me to retain mine. 
There was the noise of a chair moving violently. The elder man had sprung to his feet in a huff. Then you refuse? Absolutely. It will disgrace you no less than myself. Then I must act without your consent. You threaten? Nothing. No, father, you know I have not the strength for that. And yet? And yet, unless you change, our lives must drift apart, never to meet again. I cannot touch a penny of your money, sir, henceforwards. What? You will throw up your allowance? Yes, sir. You have always been very good to me. But now, since you and I are of so vitally different a mind on the most important crisis in my life, it is impossible for me to be dependent any longer upon you. Oh, but this is stark-staring lunacy. Why, Elliot, think a moment. Where does the expiation come in if you have no money? I have my youth. I am only thirty-two. But what will you live upon? Upon your youth? I have heard that others have lived upon your youth, but you can't do it yourself. I will live upon money earned, honestly. Earned how? You have not been trained for anything. And therefore am ready for everything. My dear boy, you are an absolutely incompetent young man. It seems cruel to say so, but it is kindest to remind you of it. You have never succeeded in anything you have undertaken. Your will is weak. "'Your execution random, your laziness incorrigible. "'You are a shiftless, thriftless being "'with a bent for metaphysics and champagne. "'Faults or virtues of a man with an income "'become vices in a man without one. "'And as, moreover, you propose to add honesty "'to all your other vices, "'it needs no profit to foresee you swirling "'among the flotsam and jetsam of humanity "'within a twelve-month. "'No, my boy,' You are not well. You've been going to bed too early in the morning. Pack up your portmanteau and go off to the Riviera for a month, and pitch your fads and your scruples into the Mediterranean. What you say of me, sir, is unfortunately too true. I have been but a well-dressed tramp, a vagabond in broadcloth, but I am not too old to turn over a new leaf. And what do you propose to write on this new leaf? A story. A story? Yes, sir, a story. You write? <laughs> well, well, so the leaf you turn over will be taken out of my book. No, sir, I hope to write my own books, and yet, in a sense, it will be a leaf out of your book. In what sense? Does it not strike you, sir? you who have seen so much of novel writing, but an excellent germ for a story we have here. Uh, sir, do you mean to say that you are going to publish this story, that you are going to foul your own nest and wash your dirty linen in public? No, sir, I shall publish the story anonymously. Nobody will ever suspect it has anything to do with me or you. Besides, it would not do to invite comparisons between my work, and the other Elliot de Grey's. I should be damned in stentor by all your enemies, whose malice is impotent to damage your own popularity. I am not so prolific at plots as my, my namesake. Why should I trouble to invent when I have a subject made to my hand? My first tottering steps will be best taken if I lean on the go-cart of reality." I shall start my new life and my story 
tomorrow. So long a silence ensued that I thought it would never end. All I could hear was their heavy breathing, as if they were glaring defiance at each other. Then there came a roar of laughter from the great novelist's lips. <laughs> On my word, you are right. It is indeed a plot, for a farce. You will make your debut in fiction by telling the truth. <laughs> Excellent. And I'll tell you what. You annoy me dreadfully, Elliot de Cray. But I'm hanged if I won't give you an introduction to my old chum, the editor of the Bandlery magazine, and ask him for my sake to publish your first essay in Truth. <laughs> Father, for the last time I use that word, you will not understand me after all. This is no subject for levity. It is the deepest tragedy of my life. I am much older than I was a month ago. I am old enough to earn my own living now. If your decision is final, so is mine. My life must henceforwards be lived apart from yours, not helped by it to the extent of a farthing, or even of a letter of introduction to anyone. Fortunately, alas, that I should have to say it, my mother is dead. The tie between us is not a complicated knot. It concerns you and me only. It can be severed at a stroke. When I have written my story, it is not to your friends that I shall go. Then go to the devil, roared the great novelist as he burst open the casement door, bumped against my armchair, and strode off with another oath. I had barely the time to catch a glimpse of a handsome, sinuous, full-bearded face writhing with vexation. Would his son follow him? I waited, not daring to stir a finger. Presently I heard the young man pacing the terrace with restless, unsteady feet. I shifted noiselessly in my seat and peered over the back of the armchair. The moon was hidden now by the rack of clouds, and the sigh of the wind among the pine trees by the river was the only sound that mingled with those tragic footsteps. Elliot de Cray paused at last, and leaned his elbows on the parapet and gazed long and intently towards the somber water that coiled like a black, red-spotted snake below him. Then I saw his shoulders heave convulsively. He was sobbing like a child. Oh, the tragedy of it! The deepest tragedy of my life! What a dark tale of sin and shame was here, deepened by the cynical worldliness of the father, so false to the fine teaching of his works, relieved only by the resoluteness of the guilty to make atonement. Elliot, Elliot, thou whose eccentricities astonished even the bachelors, how couldst thou have fallen into so conventional a gin? True, thou hast redeemed thyself somewhat as an original by casting off thy father, because he will not have thee marry the woman of thy choice, but yet, methinks, it were better to have loved and lost though the broad outlines of the story were clear to me, I waited with pitying eagerness for the details. Long before my sympathy was appeased, Elliot had written the letter of resignation which I expected daily. Its arrival put the seal upon my hypothesis, if a thing so certain could be called a hypothesis. Our grief for the departed was unusually severe, and, for my own part, I do not know how I should have borne up if I had not been sustained by the duty of reading, or rather skimming the fiction of the month. To anticipate a little, 
I may say at once that during the next few months I sat several hours a day with wet towels round my head, reading everything that might possibly be the story of Elliot de Cray's secret sin in marriage. My mind became a chaos of incongruous impossibilities, my brain blood-sodden pulp, my skull a seething cauldron of inane sentimentalities. But I read on, Till you try to keep pace with it, you have no idea what an appalling amount of unnecessary lying is turned out every month. And they are not even new lies. They are such an old pack. After I had hunted the needle, sick and dizzy, for a fortnight, it occurred to me that I was neglecting the American hay. At first I read everything, and widening my sphere to take in transatlantic lying, I found myself driven to select and to discard stories whose titles were out of all relation to the plot of which i was in search that was why when the story did come along i tossed it aside and it was only by the merest accident that i came to read the following story under the queer label of hamlet up to date end of chapter three part one